0: Hey, if you guys have been around for the last few months, uh, I teach once a month generally, and uh, the last couple of messages I've had have been fairly heavy, okay? Talking about some, uh, not only assurance of salvation, but some warnings about that, and pretty stark, pretty confrontive. So I thought that maybe I needed to lighten up a little bit, and it's summer, okay? Okay? So, I've got a little bit of a cookie to introduce the topic for today. So, you guys can roll it. We'll get started with this. I don't know about you, but the thing that sold me on that video was Popeye and Brutus. (laughs) Only a few of you will know what I'm talking about. Uh, Perhaps a little background might be helpful here. As you can tell by that song, you know, whether it's interpersonal relationship problems or maybe a zombie apocalypse, it's easy. All you need is love. And uh, in the uh, 1960s and 70s, it was a pretty difficult time, a tumultuous time. And we had the sexual revolution in combination with the youth revolt against the establishment and a very unpopular war in Vietnam. And all those things kind of came together. And we would hear protests of people saying things like, make love, not war. Okay? And... uh, hippies and flower children would hold up two fingers and say peace and love. Tens of thousands of young people would flock to cities like San Francisco to wear flowers in their hair and experiment with drugs and experience what they called free love. In 1966, Time Magazine had this cover and asked rhetorically, is God dead, perhaps? And not long after that, uh, John Lennon made the claim that his group, The Beatles, were actually more popular than Jesus Christ. So, think about this. If you're one of those young people Waking up on the streets or in some hovel in one of these cities as a flower child and realizing that the drug-induced hallucination you had the night before was not real. Over and over again. You might grow a little weary. And some of these folks realize that the free love they had experienced wasn't so free because they paid for it, some of them with STDs. Uh, now, why are we talking about this? Uh, personally, Christy and I have been reading through together a book. It's about the life of Greg Laurie, who's a, kind of a famous radio teacher right now. But he was a hippie at one time, uh, and kind of in the middle of all this. And this book has brought back a flood of memories about things that were happening as Christy and I had fallen in love and were growing up. And so we wanted to go through this and kind of just see, kind of relive some of these things that were going on around us. Uh, Some of these people who grew weary were changed. And God used the eventual disappointment, emptiness, and disillusionment with drugs, sex, and rock and roll to turn many a hippie to a relationship with Jesus and started what came to be known as the Jesus movement. So for some love took on a very new meaning. Some were transformed from all you need is love to literally preaching all you need is Jesus. Now we were in Kansas City, kind of insulated from a lot of this, but This was a bit of a struggle for the cookie-cutter church of the 1960s. And I still remember my mom, who was trying to reach me, saying, Kent, tonight we're going to go to church, and we're going to experience a non-traditional service. I said, okay, all right. So we showed up, and I saw something I'd never seen before. Okay? Okay. I saw strangers in bell-bottoms with flowers jumping in the pews, usually occupied by staid, clean-cut men and women in coats and ties and dresses. And guitars and bongos replaced the huge pipe organ in the Country Club United Methodist Church just south of the plaza. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh, I remember this dissonance in my mind because this was totally different than anything i would ever experienced before. And the Jesus movement had an impact that shook up the traditional church and eventually led to an emphasis on evangelism, okay? And uh, some of you remember some of these things. There was a thing called uh, Evangelism Explosion and and, uh, Expo 72 or something like that where they got together and and Billy Graham got involved and it was quite a thing. And organizations like Campus Crusade and the Navigators gained a stronger foothold on college campuses. uh, And that influence on campus is what led yours truly to understand the gospel for the, very same, for, for the very first time. Despite growing up in a mainline church, I was literally sitting at my desk looking at our Facebook of the day, which is a bulletin board filled with pictures of Christy. <laughs> and in the other part of the room, in a KU frat house, was one of these Jesus people witnessing to my roommate and i started to listen and i'd heard some of this stuff before but it never made sense until i heard it from him a straightforward deliverance of the gospel message i called christy and i told her about it and she had been a southern baptist so she'd been saved a long time ago but this was new for me this was my salvation moment uh and I would go to Campus Crusade minis and we'd sing It Only Takes a Spark and songs like that. Uh, and it was, a, it was a whole different thing for me from, from what I'd grown up in a, in a rather traditional church. Uh, that next summer, Christy and I frequented a one-room or one-story house across the parking lot from the Colonial Presbyterian Church in Kansas City. I think it was called the Ichthus House, if I'm not mistaken. And dozens and dozens of teens would sit on the floor listening to somebody slightly older than them tell them about Jesus. Again, this is the first time that I could, I could start to comprehend what genuine love really is. All this to say that love has many connotations. It's a hugely broad subject, but it's vital for you and I to grasp what genuine love really is. God's love, lest we be deceived and consumed by a counterfeit. So last month we discussed John's great warning about deception and about assurance of salvation, with some, as I said, pretty tough language, used to achieve that assurance. Now we've reached kind of the halfway point in the book of First John, and there's going to be a shift in focus now somewhat. Uh, the end of our passage last month provides a natural bridge to our discussion today. So if you turn in your in your Bibles to First uh, John three. Uh, We'll read through this passage so we can get the big picture, but I'm going to start with verse 10, which was the last verse in our message last week. And there it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That was the stark contrast we were dealing with the last couple of months. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So, It's more than just saying the words. It's more than just claiming to be a Christian. It's practicing righteousness. Now, here's the link. Here's the bridge. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. The one who does not love his brother is not of God. Okay. So this is a not-so-subtle hint that love is a key element in gaining assurance of our salvation. So let's move on from there, starting at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, up to this point, the overarching theme of John's letter has been God is light. Now, so we've talked about how some still walk in darkness, love is the undercurrent. It's been there, but consistently in the context of light. In chapter 2, John states that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In this second half of John, the contrast turns now to loving versus hating your brother with an even greater emphasis on the main theme of God is love. John tells us that one of the signs of our salvation is our love for one another or more accurately what he says here is if one does not love one does not know God. Jesus made it very clear that our obedience demonstrates our vertical love for him when he said whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then Jesus told us about our horizontal love when he gave us a new commandment. He said he gave, he's given to us, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In John 13, this love provides the example of our primary witness to a watching world. So in our passage today, John is going to examine the authenticity of our love. His test is clear, but it is also convicting. So let's try to take this piece by piece. Let's read verses 11 and 12 here. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we see the contrast between love and hate, which form the foundation of the great conflict of all history of all the world. From the beginning, God's message was that we are to love one another. But the message of the evil one was of hate and its eventual or its ultimate overt expression, murder. Now, this message of love is from the beginning is replete throughout the New Testament. And on your handout there, you've got multiple passages which tell you all about that love for others. The contrast here with hate starts with the beginning in the person of Cain, the first murderer. Our spiritual parentage is as children of God. He is our father. Cain's was clearly that of the devil. And when Jesus rebuked the inquiring yet unconverted Jews in John John 8, He demonstrated the effect of satanic parenthood. He said there, starting in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Cain's spiritual father planted jealousy and resentment in him over the rejection of his sacrifice so much so that he murdered his own brother whose sacrifice was righteous but Cain's response is typical of the world because the world resents the claim that we make of one God with an exclusive Savior and salvation that cannot be earned by our efforts, but only by the gift of Christ's righteous sacrifice. But then John goes on and tells us that we should not be naive. We should not be surprised that the world hates us because this is the nature of the world, just like Cain, because that's the nature of the world's father. The devil. The world hates you because its father hates you. But what about us? What's our response? When another person is warm, is not warm and fuzzy toward you, maybe they're cold, or they even express outright anger toward you, how do you and I respond? Well, our natural response might be, less than charitable but John warns us do not be like Cain do not return fire for fire hatred for hatred you know Paul tells us to never repay evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone first Thessalonians 5 likewise Paul quotes uh, Proverbs 25 in Romans 12 when he says beloved This is almost counterintuitive because it's against our nature, our sin nature. But it is the result of the gospel that changes our parentage by adoption and our very nature. Love is the core of the gospel. So when another demonstrates hatred or offends you, an in-kind response is expected. However, a response of love is totally unexpected. Now, that response may or may not change the nature of that person, but it will will certainly cause that person to think. It will kindle a fire in their conscience, and they'll start to wonder, what's burning? Why do I feel hot? It's that kind of an effect that responding the way that scripture tells us to respond to hatred and anger that changes people let's go on to verses 14 and 15 here we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, before we get into this passage, we need to pause for caution and to cover some, some smaller points here. This is certainly a great passage about an assurance. But the application of loving your brother if taken too casually without the whole counsel of God can result in deception. Some people have only heard and can only quote to you a part of one verse or another. Like, God is love. Or I bet you've heard this one. Oh, love your neighbor. And this results in a, what I call a single phrase theology. Like that one on the board. These people have a totally incomplete view of the Word and of God. But they're they're legion. They're out there all over the place. To them, the sum and substance of God is love. Period. They are simply a religious version of the flower children of the 60s, and their focus primarily is on the feeling of love. Now, they might even say to you, if you have any love in your heart, you're going to heaven. But you know as well as I do that the word love has so many meanings today, all the way from doing a kind thing or handing a flower to somebody, certainly includes sex, or maybe even dying for somebody. I mean, the the connotations are extremely broad. But this theology can lead to a very skewed view of salvation. God certainly is love, but He is so much more. He's the creator. He's the giver, the taker. He forms reality and justice and His righteousness. We certainly should love our neighbors. But God tells us to do so much more, like obedience and righteousness and discipline and honesty and humility and sacrifice. What John is saying here is that when we consistently love others out of our thankfulness for God and His mercy, that person has evidence and assurance of their salvation. What John is not saying here is that this same love of the brethren will gain admission into the pearly gates. Your salvation is a result of your acceptance of Christ's work on the cross to pay the price for your sin. Your love for others flows out of your gratefulness for that sacrifice, and it is, again, another evidence that you're already saved. Got to say a few other things about this. We also uh, need to be clear that John speaks specifically, specifically here about love of your brother, meaning another believer. Now, this is clarified in Galatians 6. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. We always start with loving and taking care of our own, our own family and the family of God, as priorities, But that does not exempt us from loving, serving, and doing good to everyone. Uh, Another thing to clear clear up about this word brother, if we can avoid this. The Greek word here can be translated as a male sibling or a sibling in general. And this word brother appears about 15 times in John's letter. And it almost always means the family of God. It's obvious from the the whole counsel of God that both sexes are part of that family. The Bible distinguishes the respective roles of the sexes and it addresses sex, but it is not sexist. We are different, but equal in God's sight. Finally, Be careful about wooden interpretations of the word. When John says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's not saying that even murder is an unforgivable sin. If that were so, Moses and David and Paul would not be saved. John is saying here that those who live lives characterized by hatred give evidence that they never were saved and remain, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's simply passing on what he learned from Jesus, who said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said of by those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable for judgment. But I, Jesus, say to you that, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counsel. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So a hateful attitude in the heart is the equivalent of murder in the heart. Love and hate cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. Okay. Okay. Verse 16, by this we know love. He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, there's much ado about love around us. It is a huge part of our culture. Society is in love with love. The subject is seen in novels, in movies, talk show advice, and certainly social media. Some studies suggest Uh, and I think this is low that over sixty percent of all contemporary songs have something to do with love it's clear that the word love saturates much of our lives and our conversation but understanding the nature of genuine love is not so common true love goes beyond expression it is demonstrated love was expressed given and received in the beginning in the garden but after the fall sin entered and things started to fall apart. Cain's murder of Abel started a chain reaction. Today, you've heard of several cities that are considered murder capitals. We just experienced two mass murders in the space of 24 hours. And since 1973, over 60 million children have been aborted in the United States and what was once considered an evil by all called infanticide is now being defended as a woman's right. And in China that figure is 360 million. Stalin uh, once said that a single death is a tragedy but a million death is just a statistic. Now. For us, anyway, we should all be amazed and saddened at these figures. However, we should not be surprised. The unbelieving world is blind to the truth, and the result is death. Thankfully, John tells us that this culture of death is overcome by the suffering, the death, and the love of our Savior, and he tells us then to lay down our lives in the same way. I don't know if you've noticed, it's just kind of weird, but 1 John 3.16 is remarkably like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Now whether that's intentional or providential or coincidental doesn't really make any difference. John 3.16 emphatically says God gave his son. And, John, and 1 John 3.16 says we should do the same thing. For each other let me ask what is the cultural symbol for love it's the heart isn't it yeah um, many would say that but usually what we're talking about there is emotional love or you know uh, I love my dog or I love a state or you know I love this or I heart this or, I heart radio or you know stuff like that Now, the heart certainly is deeply involved in love, in genuine love. But But to symbolize genuine love, love which not only feels but acts, lives it out, even sacrifices for others, the symbol you would choose is really the cross. If you wish to live love, look to the cross. We can only fully comprehend what genuine love is if we consider what Jesus did for us. His example of love tells us that love is self-sacrificial. He lived a perfect life. We stumble around in life in sin. He took on the suffering and death that you and I deserve. And if we really understand that kind of love, we won't have an obligation to be thankful We won't just be willing to be thankful. Rather, it will be our joy to express our thankfulness. We'll consider it a privilege to be his servants and to live out our lives as living sacrifices in worship of thankfulness. John here calls us to fully comprehend the love of Christ. And out of our gratefulness for that sacrifice, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Sounds kind of logical but it really is against our nature. It's almost counterintuitive because of our sin nature. Radio teacher Warren Wiersbe said this, put it this way, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. Jesus said it a little more directly in John 15, greater love has no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. We're going to go a step higher. Verse 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Expressing love by a willingness to die for another is good and noble and godly. However, you and I all know that in the back of our minds, that kind of sacrifice is rarely called upon for us. So John gets down to the practical application of this passage. You can almost hear John role-playing here. And taking on the part of a needy person who says, You know, I appreciate the fact that you're will- you say you're willing to die for me. You know? At this point, I really don't need you to die for me. I need you to help me with my marriage. I need somebody to babysit my kids just for a little while. I need help with my finances. Could you help me with last month's utility bill? Could, Could I stay in your spare room until I can get a job? Now, that kind of sacrifice is not as nearly as noble as dying for somebody, but that's real life. That's what you're going to run into. John has used uh, something similar to what we call an opportune argument in logic, meaning from the greater to the lesser. So if you're willing to say that you will die for somebody, make the ultimate sacrifice... Are you willing to to make the more mundane, the lesser sacrifices that will actually come up? Are we willing to do that? To give of our time, our efforts, and our resources? In James 2, Jesus' brother discusses the sin of partiality of being a respecter of persons, of saying to the well-heeled person who walks into church, you sit up front, but saying to the poor person, you sit back there in the corner. And he contrasts that with what he called the royal law, according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he goes on to express much of the same thought that John did. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's love expressed. (laughs) But without giving them the things needed for the body, but not demonstrated, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, If the love is not demonstrated, it is dead. It's kind of like, uh, I think, our ministry partner today, the rescue mission. It's faith with its sleeves rolled up. Paul refers several times to the trio of faith, hope, and love. All these are vital to the Christian walk, but he concludes that the greatest of these is love. Again, a fortiori, if one's faith is dead when they do not serve and minister to the needs of others, do you think it's possible in such a situation that one's love is even on life support? Last step up. John ends with little children, let us not love in word, or talk but indeed and in truth so this emphasizes that love goes far beyond words of affection statements of genuine devotion and commitment even beyond action you know there's nothing wrong with taking vows at the marriage altar but for some it's a ritual. It seems by the divorce rate that many consider the words tell death do us part as simply a formality that you gotta mouth at the altar rather than a vow before God. John makes clear that love is more than words no matter how well phrased. Love is action, doing, serving, giving, sacrificing, even dying to self. But love requires more than mechanical action or deed. It requires truth. Truthful love in this context, according to Paul, comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Just as one may talk about love without acting it out, one may act in a way that may appear to be out of love, but for the wrong motives. Many young women have learned this The hard way. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. When we speak of love, those words can be empty. But when we do things trying to convince somebody that we love them, those actions can be insincere or even hypocritical. And getting close here, I want to make a guy analogy but this is one of those things that's so common that I bet a, a number of you ladies have experienced this. God's love works a lot like the battery on your car. Okay, Stay with me here. We got two poles, the positive for action and the negative grounded in truth. Okay, And for that love to work, for it to be effective, to be genuine, For it to power the engine of our life, it must be connected securely to both poles. Got it? Got to have action, got to have truth. But even with a good solid connection, over time, because we are in the world, our environment and the various elements of life will cause corrosion to build up around those poles like pride, covetousness, impatience, greed, selfishness, those sorts of things. And that corrosion will actually cause a break in the connection so that the current of love stops flowing. Now, How do we avoid that? Well, preventive maintenance is always the best, right? That's what Phil will tell you. Regular checks, cleaning through the daily, your daily time in the Word and prayer, regular fellowship... Uh, really, really strongly encourage you to be involved with a small group because that's where you experience and show the love for the brothers. All those things are helpful along with discipleship to maintain the, a positive connection on your batteries. But there's sometimes when you get up and you've got to be somewhere and the car just won't start. Right? And in those situations, unfortunately, God has to scrape off those poles and those cables with a wire brush. Remember, He disciplines us as children. Why? Because He loves us. One more thing here. More than anything, remind yourself daily of the example of what genuine love looks like. It's a spotless lamb, an innocent Savior, hanging on the cross, suffering the pain and anguish that you and I deserved to satisfy God's perfect justice by his perfect love. As the worship team comes up, uh, let me just finish here. Yeah. The topic of love dominates our culture. I'm sure it's the most oft-used word in churches all over. Yet we must remember that talking about love, singing about it, or even obsessing over it is not fully biblical love. (laughs) That love of the brothers is sacrificing for, meeting the needs of, and serving others out of a pure heart. There's some questions at the end of your handout, and I truly hope that you'll look at those, you'll consider those, ideally in your, in your, in your small group, or if you can't do that, on your own. Uh, and hopefully all of us, we're all learning here, will learn to fully put John's teaching into practice. We've all got a lot to learn and to do. Father, we give praise to You, and we thank You for Your Word And sometimes it hurts to hear it, Lord, because we know we are falling short. I know that I am. Lord God, we pray that you would make this sink in, that you would give us a love for the brothers and for everyone. Help us to understand that that is the stuff of the gospel. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.